0: Chapter twenty four of Four Mothers at Chautauqua by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Links in the Chain. The impulse came to her that evening as she tiptoed through her daughter's nursery to find two of her grandchildren kneeling, with Hazel, beside their little beds, and paused to listen to their prayer. Here was evidently one who knew how to teach little children to pray in familiar yet reverent language. Since her coming among them, Hazel had made rapid strides into the hearts of these new friends. The children adored her, and their pleased mothers rejoiced together over her discovery. The wish most often on their lips was that they could keep her with them, and they argued as to which of the numerous family groups most needed her entirely unaware of the fact that the young man, who often listened to them, set his lips in firm lines and told himself that he should like to see any of them keep her. Never were mother and sisters, or, for that matter, an entire circle of friends, blinder than these. Mrs. Roberts called Hazel to her room as soon as the nursery scene was closed, and began abruptly— "'Hazel, I know you believe in specific prayer for others. I want you to join your petitions with ours to-morrow. It will be my son's birthday, and we have set it apart, my special friends here and his father across the sea, as a day of prayer for him. Will you pray for him very often to-morrow, dear child?' Wide-eyed astonishment was at first Hazel's only answer. Then she spoke timidly. "'Are you asking me to pray for your son, Mrs. Roberts?' "'Yes, for Burnham. His father and I have prayed for him every day of his life, but the answer has not come yet. His father has been led, through prayer, to believe that this summer will be the one in which he will make unchangeable decisions, and he thinks that this week is a crucial one to him. We are going to call upon God as never before.' "'But, Mrs. Roberts, please, I do not understand. "'Is there a special thing that you want him to do or not do? "'My child, we want him to give himself to the Lord.' She remembered always the look of blank dismay that swept over Hazel's face, and the faltering voice in which she asked, "'You do not mean that Mr. Roberts is not a Christian?' "'Yes, my dear, I do.' He makes no pretense of having the slightest interest in the subject, although when he was a boy of eight I thought him the most sincere little Christian I had ever known. But he went away from home among companions whose influence was bad, and gradually he gave up all his old beliefs that we had thought were firmly rooted. I know you will remember to pray for him. Little she knew of the turmoil of soul into which she had plunged poor Hazel, it was almost as if she had been told that she herself had given up the beliefs in which her childhood had been rooted, so sure had she been that Mr. Roberts was a fully developed Christian. All her talk with him had been from that standpoint. In the privacy of her own room that night she went over in detail their conversation but the evening before. Mrs. Roberts had arranged so that she could attend the eventide service, and it had been lovely and helpful beyond what had been described to her. As the crowd were moving away, she had come upon Mr. Roberts waiting for her. "'Wasn't it lovely?' she had said. "'I am so glad I heard that man.' "'Why?' he had asked, and seemed amused at her eagerness. It had stimulated her to explanation." because he was so helpful and suggestive and original, don't you think so? One often thinks of the power of electricity, but I never heard the thought applied as he used it. But after all, it almost frightens one, doesn't it? To think of the power we might have. If a copper wire can carry more than a hundred thousand men, what can a human soul carry when God has hold of him? Doesn't that make you feel as though we had never let God have real hold of us after all? She remembered now that he had not answered her, but at the time she thought nothing of it, and had gone on eagerly, laughing as she spoke. Imagine the Doctor of Divinity playing all day with a teddy-bear! Wasn't it a capital illustration? But Mr. Roberts had said that the teddy-bear must have come in before he reached there, and had insisted on knowing just what was said. She had been very willing to tell it. He was speaking of our outgrowing things that we used to fancy we would always want to do. Just as soon as we got a real vision of Jesus Christ, we find our tastes changing. If they don't, he said, there's something wrong. You watch people and see. If you find me playing all day long with a teddy bear, doing it day after day with relish, you will know at once that there is something abnormal, unhealthy about me. Apply that to your Christian life it was queer but wasn't it probing she had thought that the reason he made no answer was because others came up just then the discovery that he had no interest in no sympathy with the vital truths that had been thus quaintly pressed home to consciences was so unexpected that it fairly stunned her she did not wait for to-morrow with her prayers she not only prayed but wept and the tears were bitter they had a personal element it seemed to her that she had lost a friend. The garish light of day told all too plainly the story of the night's vigil. Hazel's eyes were red, with dark circles underneath. Her intention had been to avoid the sight of Mr. Roberts, and she had not appeared at the breakfast table. But Mr. Roberts had no intention of being avoided. He had delightful plans for the children. It was his birthday, he told them, and he meant to play all day long." He would take them to Celeron on the big boat for a picnic and a swing and endless trips in the merry-go-round and unlimited dishes of ice-cream and a boat-row and—really he did not know what all. Of course Miss Harris was to go with them. Did they think he would undertake to keep them from going up in a balloon or something without her to help? All in a moment the children were brought from their heaven of delight to the depths of despair— Hazel would hear to none of the plans. In vain Mr. Roberts questioned earnestly. She had no reasons to give, she was simply not going out with the children that day. Nora was to be in charge, and they were not to go away from the children's playground back of the kindergarten. Oh, very well, he said, the children's frolic could wait for to-morrow. Would she take a long walk with him, away down the shore where it was quiet, to relieve the headache which he saw she had? He had something to read to her that would drive away pain. No, she could not walk that day. She was not going out. Would he please let her pass? Mrs. Erskine Burnham wanted her, and would be waiting. But he sturdily kept his position, and told her rudely to let Mrs. Erskine Burnham wait. "'Hazel, I want to understand. Something has happened. You have been crying. What is wrong?' Have my sisters, have any of those women been nagging you? Then what is it? My mother cannot—' She had interrupted him then, speaking with firmness. "'Your mother is the dearest woman in the world, and they are all just as good to me as they can be. I cannot stay here talking another minute.' She had brushed past him and scurried out of sight. Yet she was almost certain that she had done harm—' Mr. Roberts would continue to feel that she had been hurt in some way, and would not rest until he discovered the cause of her conduct. Burnham Roberts strode away moodily, paying no attention to the children's calls after him. All his thoughts were occupied with what had happened to Hazel. When, an hour later, he met Eureka, if he had not been too busy with the other problem, he would have noted that she, too, was unlike her usual self." In truth, she was in a mood so strange that she did not herself understand it. Almost it seemed to her that Burnham Roberts was the victim of a conspiracy. What did they mean by singling him out in that way, a dozen of them, making him a special subject for consideration all day? It was a scheme about which he knew nothing. She had gathered enough from their talk to be sure of that. Ought not she, his friend, to tell him? Yet, what could she tell? You must be on the watch to-day, for your friends have all combined against you here and across the ocean. They are going to pray constantly for you all day long. How absurd to go to him with a tale like that! She laughed at her own folly, and then at theirs. What did they imagine would happen to him because they were going to spend one entire day, or one entire week for that matter, praying for him? A company of fanatics carrying things to extremes, as fanatics always did. Why was she so annoyed? She ought to be glad, she supposed. Prayer did sometimes help people, her father had been sure of it. And she, yes, she believed in prayer, of course. Burnham at least could not be injured by it. And the boy certainly needed help, often, to keep him from spoiling his life by some folly. Let them pray, MEANTIME, WHAT ATTITUDE SHOULD THIS UNKNOWN FELLOW-CONSPIRATOR TAKE IN THE MATTER? SHE COULD NOT PRAY, HER PART MUST BE TO ACT. BURNHAM WAS MERCIFULLY FREE FROM THE SUBJECT OF HIS INFATUATION, TODAY AT LEAST, THAT WAS SOMETHING. SHE HAD OVERHEARD HAZEL EXPLAIN TO NORAH THAT SHE WAS TO HAVE FULL CHARGE OF THE CHILDREN ALL DAY. SHE HERSELF WAS NOT GOING OUT. SHE HAD sewing AND OTHER WORK TO DO. What if she, the silent conspirator, should spirit the subject of all this praying away for the day? They might take that long-delayed trip to Jamestown, stopping off at Celeron for an ice, and any fun they could find. Why not? There would be a sort of poetic justice about it, they too being the left-out ones." Thoughts like these were in the background of her mind while she exerted herself to charm the moody companion whom she had joined without waiting for him to ask her. She waited for him at the bookstand while he went upstairs, ostensibly to hunt a text-book that his sister had left behind, but in reality to read the note from his father which his mother had given him that morning, and which, in his annoyance over Hazel, he had forgotten until now." So, having glanced about the classroom for the missing book, he had dropped into a chair and taken out his letter. It was not lengthy. A piece of paper fell out from it, which he crushed in his hand while he read. "'I have but a few minutes to write before the mail closes. I am sending you herewith a birthday remembrance, as I have calculated that the letters by this steamer will reach New York only a few days before that important date.' I have spent the time that I would have given to writing, on my knees, thanking God for giving my son another year of life, and asking him to mark the opening of your new year with so signal a gift to you that it shall forever after stand out from all the others. A blessed year! Will you think me superstitious, my boy, if I tell you that I am impressed with the belief that you have reached a crisis of your life, a turning point?' I believe the Lord has given me this thought. I am asking God if the anniversary of your birth may not be the day in which you will accept his gift, looking up to him for the first time as a son, because you are a new creature in Jesus Christ. Oh, my boy, my boy, your earthly father's heart is breaking with the longing to have his youngest-born a lover and follower of Jesus Christ. You know the way, you have known it from your babyhood, I believe you have no foolish modern skepticism to overcome. You have only to will to take the Lord Jesus Christ for your personal Saviour. A little step, a moment of time, would accomplish the transfer. How gladly would I make it for you if I could! I thought as I wrote my name on the bit of paper enclosed, thus making what it stands for, forever yours, provided you choose to accept it, how gladly your dear mother would write your name with her heart's blood, if by doing so she could secure for you the gift of God that he holds out to you! But it must be your own signature to the paper, and the call, that will make the provisions yours. You can turn away from both gifts, burn mine in the fire if you will, and make no answer whatever to the one who holds out the other, BUT YOUR FATHER ENTREATS YOU, DEAR BOY, TO ACCEPT THEM TO-DAY. I AM BEGINNING TO FEEL THAT IT MAY BE AT LEAST IN A MEASURE MY OWN FAULT THAT YOU HAVE REACHED THE YEARS OF MANHOOD WITHOUT GIVING YOUR LIFE TO GOD. WITH SUCH A MOTHER AS YOURS, WHOSE EVERY THOUGHT ALMOST SINCE SHE FIRST HELD YOU IN HER ARMS HAS BEEN CONNECTED WITH A PRAYER FOR YOU, AND WHO HAS LIVED BEFORE YOU THE CONSECRATED LIFE SHE HAS, IT MUST BE YOUR FATHER WHO HAS FAILED. I see some of my mistakes very plainly. Often I fear I have been stern and cold, or appeared so, when I ought rather to have shown you God as a patient, forbearing, waiting father. My son, will you forgive me, and let me have the joy of knowing that my mistakes have not been fatal, because you have looked past me to your Father in heaven, and accepted the provision he has made? After reading this letter for the second time, the young man sat motionless, staring at the page like one bewildered, overwhelmed. In truth he was. For years and years, so it seemed to him, there had not come a letter from his father that was not filled with stern, sometimes scathing rebuke. That his conduct had demanded rebuke and censure he did not deny, although he saw it more plainly at that moment than ever before." yet the fact remained that the tenderness and yearning of a father's heart had been shadowed for him by the critic and judge nevertheless he knew and had known all his life that after all few sons had such a father as his the thought of his having actually asked to be forgiven gave the young man a strange choking sensation and his eyes smarted with unshed tears but he knew that he must not linger there he must go back to eureka who would think his long absence very strange it was then that he thought of the bit of paper crushed in his hand his birthday gift he smiled a little bitterly he was not having the kind of birthday he had planned he wished his father had not sent him money of course it was money he had been given enough the idea of accepting daily bounty from his father, not only, but unasked for gifts beside, and yet giving no heed to his pleading, was beneath a decent fellow. If he could not do what he asked, he ought not to accept his gifts. He meant to tell his father that his foolish dawdling days were over. He was going back to New York to go to work. At least he could earn his own living at once, and he meant to. But that was not what father and mother wanted most the idea of a day being set apart to pray for him what did they want? Oh, he knew why must it always be something that a fellow couldn't do if that check proved to be more than a trifle, if it were even fifty dollars, he would not sign it, he would send it back and tell his father he had given him extras enough. Hereafter he meant to earn them for himself. He looked at the name, a name so well known, and such a power in the business world. Not a bank in New York, but would be glad to honor that signature. After all, it was a great thing to have a name of such strength underneath a fellow's life. At last he looked at the face of the draft. Pay to the order of Burnham Roberts $25,000. End of chapter 24